Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Descriptions for Authors podcast. My name is Mike Levins. I'm your co-host, Amelia Rose, six-figure description author, is also another one of our co-hosts. And today we have a very special guest that I'll talk about in a minute, but I first want to share what we're going to be talking about, which is how to do collaborations right as an author, how to make sure that all parties are on the same side, whether you're working with an editor, whether you're working with someone who's going to design your tier images, if you're starting a subscription, or whether you're working with a co-author to design your own tier, an artist that's creating art or merch for you. As subscription authors, we want to create worlds for our readers. We want to build community with our readers and be able to collaborate and make awesome experiences with them. But it also means that sometimes we have to collaborate with other professionals. And in that process, we want to make sure that we have the legal side of things right. We'll be diving into that today. We'll also be talking about copyright. Copyright is really important. We'll be talking about the things that you must know about copyright as an author. And this is really important for when we're collaborating with people. And today we're also going to be talking about how we can make this all easier because I know legal can seem like a headache for authors. We oftentimes don't talk about enough. That's exactly why we brought on our guest, Eric Farber. He's the CEO and founder of Creators Legal, and he's been an entertainment lawyer for decades now. He's repped some of the biggest people in the industry, and now he's trying to create a platform that makes it easier for us and cheaper to actually get the legal help that we need as authors. It's something I'm super excited about, and he's someone I'm super excited to talk with. And before we get into the podcast, I just want to let everyone know up front that although we get into some legal topics and we talk about some really important things and hopefully give you at the end of the day some really important insights that can help you in your author career as a subscription author. But also, even if you don't have a subscription, let me tell you, these insights will be helpful. But I do want to know that, unfortunately, we're not able to give legal. But I do want to note that in this podcast, we're not giving any legal advice. So if you have any serious legal questions, we do recommend that you consult a lawyer. In addition, if you want to join our community and collaborate with us, no, no legal issues. You just have to join a free Facebook group. You can do that. We have a free Facebook group called Subscriptions for Authors. There's over 1,600 of you in it, and we'd love to have you in it if you're not in it already. And you'll learn a lot about how to start your subscription, about how to grow it, and meet a ton of awesome authors. Some just started their subscription, and some who are making six figures a year in subscriptions. So anyways, that's enough from me. We're going to get into this podcast. I hope everyone has a great time listening to this one. Let's do it. Eric, I just want to start with chatting with you about what are the areas when it comes to the legal side of being an author, of being anything in this new world that we call making a living on the internet? What are the legal sides of this that you see people overlook the most that we should be looking at? I think it's copyright is first, right? People ignore the copyright very often and people need to understand what it is to have a chain of title in the work that they produce. So if you're producing formal work and even as this kind of informal work, you've got to think about the copyright issue and the chain of title issue. What does that mean? That means if you have people that collaborate into the work that you, the end work that you produce, if you do not have them on some sort of contract, like a work for hire contract, then they have an ownership interest in the copyright of that work. I create a film, I create a book, I go and hire an editor, I go and hire a scriptwriter, I go and hire somebody to work craft and serve food. Anybody who touches in any manner the 
the result of the end work is going to have a copyright interest. And what a lot of people don't do is get stuff signed off prior to start working on it that contains a transfer of all ownership rights. And I always use this as an easy example. I represented an extreme athlete for many years and I was actually a producing partner with him as well. We produced several shows together. He would use these cameramen to film him as he was flying through the air in his squirrel suit. And he had hundreds of hours of footage of this stuff. And this stuff is the type of stuff you go to a bar and you see it broadcasting. Airlines would buy this stuff. They Lots of different places to do these outlets. And the issue was, and it became a very big issue, was he didn't actually have the cameramen sign off on the ownership. And at one point, so there's a lot of footage that was sitting out there that was just became unusable because he couldn't distribute it. He couldn't prove his chain of title of the work. And so when it came time to try to sell it or license that footage, they wouldn't buy it. They just said, sorry, we couldn't do it. I was just going to say that that's very scary to think about how quick that can turn around on you if you don't have the right paperwork. The big issue was that there was, we had a company that was ready to buy it or license it for some pretty big bucks, actually. And the, the, and as we were in the process of getting this done, the cameraman met with an accident as a lot of extreme athletes do, and his widow wouldn't sign off. It's Murphy's law and all of this stuff, right? So it's, if you think it won't happen, it will happen. And I love the old, oh, I've known that guy forever. There won't be any problem. Okay, you take that chance. But you can't claim an entire piece of copyright if you don't have all the signatures. And work for hires can't be verbal. They have to be written. And they have to be signed off on. And until you do that, you're not going to have all the copyright. And that's going to impede your ability to monetize. And yeah. And that's what it is. That's why we built... We actually built Creators Legal in that very specific way. So you would have all of the documents you needed in one spot. This isn't even about registering a copyright. You can always register a copyright. Registration of a copyright is about copyright enforcement. So I have a question. Do you suggest that authors register their copyright once they've written their book or before they publish it? Sure. Yeah. It's very easy to do that. I think it's $35. I haven't registered a copyright in years, but it's pretty simple stuff. And books are one of those things. The copyright is very interesting because it's not about an idea. You can't copyright an idea. A lot of people say you can't copyright a script. I think a lot of people send them in and do it anyway. But you can't copyright a script because a script is just an idea. It's the expression of the idea. It's the play. It's the movie. It's the actual song recording. Those are copyrightable things. So once you've got that book, but, and I would bet that my publisher of my book registered the copyright. I don't recall that I did, but if somebody wants to go, and it is about copying. We don't think about this in certain, these kind of terms. We think of copyright infringement and copyright issues more in the scale of that somebody took a portion of it, somebody 
created a new script that's really similar to the one that I wrote, but that's not really copying. When I worked for the Tupac estate, I worked for the Tupac estate for 20, for 18 years and Biggie and you name it. That stuff was about actual copying. Somebody took a copy, somebody took a song and copied it and put a portion of that into their song. Somebody took the album and made bootlegs of the actual music. That's what you have to think about. That's where you start with copyright, right? I own that recording. I own those lyrics. I own that underlying music. In books, it's the same thing, right? So it's, I own that book. I own all the words on the pages that make up that book. And then somebody took pages of that and put it into their book. Somebody took pages of that. Or it's a really famous book. Take the most famous books you can think of, right? Before the copyright expires. Take Moby Dick and pretend the copyright still exists. And you literally send it to a printer and say, reprint this for me. I'm going to go sell it on the street corners. I'm going to go sell it to other people. That's the origin you have to think about when it comes to copyright. Then put all that stuff aside and start talking about creating new character, creating a new book out of the same characters. You've taken Captain Ahab and put him in a different situation. And I think you start moving into fan fiction at that point, right? Yeah. 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 There's, oh, there's a lot of rich stuff to dive into here. The first big question I have is around what if I'm working with an author and collaborating on something? How does copyright work in that situation? Absolutely. Yeah. Take hip hop, for instance. You can have 16 people, right? So many people actually collaborate on that song or just a big band, right? But yes, you are now into the collaboration and the, there would be a joint work unless they, to a company that they may own together, two authors that they may own together. Now, where you get into the difficulty of these things is that when you have joint ownership, one person can actually license that out without the authorization or the sign-off from the other joint owner. If you're licensing it out for less than all, meaning that I say to Amazon, you get an exclusive to distribute my book. If you've got two people involved, and it, it is an exclusive license, then both people have to sign off. If it is a non-exclusive license, then one author can sign off. One, one joint owner can sign off. And you don't need the other person's permission. So it's really important to think about the collaboration agreement that you actually create with somebody. Yeah, no, that's really an important point. And I'll just say that. We definitely share this in the introduction, but no nothing we share on this podcast is legal advice. So we definitely recommend people consult their own resources. And we can talk even a bit more in the end about specific tools that maybe people can utilize to help through some things like this. But when it comes to fan fiction, this sort of derivative works. Yeah. What I'm curious about is if I'm an author who has fans, but we talk to many authors who are building communities of their fans, it can be like useful to encourage them to express themselves in the community. Potentially that might mean drawing things like fan art. Might even mean creating 
fan fiction to a certain extent. And many authors who come from the traditional publishing world, they're told like, do not encourage fan fiction, cut it off basically. But a lot of authors who are coming from the indie publishing world may have one day already have written fan fiction in the past, maybe coming on platforms where fan fiction is actually popular to read, not to monetize, of course. But if I'm an author who has fans who want to create fiction, is that something that you should stop? Is that something an author shouldn't recognize? What should be the relationship between an author and derivative works that people may create? Let's just start with the basics. If they are not characters that you created, that somebody else created, and there's a copyright on them, unless they're out of copyright, Shakespearean characters are now out of copyright, of course, as an example, it's not your copyright to create derivative works. So that's the starting place. There's lots of authors who, who have no problem with it. There's some authors, and it also depends on what are you creating, right? If you're going to go create a, a porn movie off of the characters of Harry Potter, you can't do it because the author has basically said, no, you can't do that. But apparently she is fine with other types of fan fiction. It really just depends on the author. I was reading earlier today, sort of brushing up on some of this stuff in preparation for the podcast. And apparently Sylvester Stallone, who wrote Rocky, right? So they're his characters, sued somebody who created a fan fiction piece of work based on the Rocky characters. And which is a little bit surprising to me because maybe they tried to create a book out of it or do something. But from what I was reading, it was really a script, which not okay, apparently, even though the script is nothing. It's just a script right? They're not selling the script. But many years ago, I represented a guy named Andre Ward, who was a Olympic gold medal boxer and a champion boxer for many years. And he was in the movie Creed. And Ryan Coogler had written Creed. And I had dinner with Ryan Coogler, this is probably eight or nine years ago, when he was prepping for Creed, which was going into production. And with MGM, of course, I believe it was MGM because it was Sylvester Stallone who was in the movie, which was based on the original Rocky characters and new ones. But uh, he told me that he came up with that script and that idea when he was like 10 years old or 11 years old. In many ways, that's quote fan fiction, right? But as long as it's okay with the person that has the original characters. But this is where I think that NFTs, Web3, the different places that we're seeing stuff these days is so intensely fascinating. It's a group called Deadheads NFTs. <clears throat> they have an animated show on YouTube. It's really good. You connected to the band? Not at all. Okay. I heard Deadheads. I'm like, so they created this show, this animated show. It's freaking brilliant. It's a great show. So what did they do? They sell the NFT ownership rights of the care of the individual characters that are in the show. And then you can take that if you buy a character, you buy the, you buy the license of the character, you can go and create your own works and you're creating derivative works from the character, but you've licensed it. You've essentially bought it right by buying this NFT. Super interesting. Right. And then they have great things like they'll have casting. And they come back and they say, hey, we're having casting. And you bring your character that was originally created by Deadheads that you now own. And you bring it back into the pool and say, hey, I want to earn some money on my character. Put them in this episode. 
It's brilliant. It's so brilliant. Yeah, I can see that being something very interesting yeah. for authors who, especially as these technologies and just the ecosystem around it evolves, because I can imagine being like, I'm done writing this series. I've written six, seven books in it, and maybe there'll be spinoffs and other things, but now I'm going to take these characters out. You could almost, it could be a very innovative way to have co-author-like relationships in a sense. You also have to think about quality too, right? You got to think about the quality of this stuff. I'm, let's pretend I'm games of, a Game of Thrones creator. And I now, I have a work that is, that is, I don't know how many people, how many characters are in Game of Thrones. 300, right? And now I've NFT'd them out for licenses. And now there's all these works that are coming out that are being written around it. Let's face it. Most people are not good writers. <laughs> and who knows that you're actually going to end up with some really good stuff out of that. Or think of the first thing that popped into my mind, partially because I spent, I've been spending so much time in Colombia is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? Like hundred years of solitude, love in the time of cholera. Like they have so many people. I think they're, I haven't read it in years, but I think there's even a map of the family trees and who they're talking about, right? You go take Gabriel Garcia Marquez's various characters and rewrite a storyline to those. But who says the quality's any good? Are you diminishing the quality of the storytelling by allowing other people to control those characters? I think that would be the big worry that everyone, that's like the thing you have to battle with. Because you could increase distribution by having more creative people behind it. But Marvel is a massive franchise that reaches everyone. And they put a lot of money into one movie to make it really good. And yeah, yeah. yeah that is an interesting topic. And that kind of takes me to Web3, something that's talked about in the publishing community, but it's something that I think is really, and maybe to sometimes not amazing experiments have happened in the broader creator CUNY, <laughs> there's been a lot of people who've had some interesting ideas that maybe are early days of testing, I'll put it that way. Some are maybe less genuine testing and more other things. But when it comes to ideas and businesses that are operating broadly in the creator economy, a lot of times authors view themselves as only being able to sell books, right? That's what we do. We sell books. Just, I guess, a YouTuber might say, I only create videos. That's all I do. Yet a lot of times creator businesses, their IP is one part of the business. And I'm curious, both from observing the broader creator world, but also your time in the entertainment world as a lawyer working for top creative people, what is it the way that IP can be used to create other assets or other businesses around what someone's doing? What are some of those things? That's everything. I would have, it doesn't matter what you do, right? Whether you're a business person, whether you're truly an artist, you've got to have range. You've got to have range in what you do, right? So it's not just about writing books. Somebody who says, I can only write books is not a writer. They may, but my guess is that they have an ability to write screenplays. They have an ability to write plays. They have an ability to write articles and journalism and blogging and marketing copy, whatever it is. But what I saw was that the talented people had great, amazing range and especially classically trained. They probably ended up in some performing arts high school where they learned how to play the piano and tap dance too, right? And then 
they end up on the stage as a comedian. They are drawn into whatever their core passion is. What are some of the other things? We're living in a time when I have a very good, I have a good friend who is a writer, a fairly famous writer, Laura Albert, who went by the pen name J.T. Uh, Leroy and wrote some fairly, fairly famous books. And she does podcasting and she does, she goes out and does modeling stuff and she writes tons of articles and for, for various magazines and she's, you got to be all in, right? There's no such thing as dipping your toe in. I think I, I'm probably a good example of that, right? I wrote a book at the beginning of, I wrote a book that came out at the beginning of the pandemic and I was going on this speaking stuff to, to go promote it. And, and all of that stuff got canceled. It literally came out in March of, I think it was the last week of February, right? I moved on to other stuff and the publisher said, are you going to write a second one? I said, no freaking way. This was way too much work for me. And I've got other things that I'm doing. No, I'm not a full-time writer in any sense of, in any sense of the word, full-time people. If that's what they want to do and that's what they want to, that's how they want to make their living, that's what they have to do. They have to write. A writer writes. A painter paints. This is about going all in. In today's day and age, with what's going on in different areas that creative people can get discovered, different ways that stories are able to be produced in the world, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to in this changing. I heard before this call, you called it the passion economy. I'm just curious what you're looking forward to and how this space has evolved because whether it's publishing or video making, this is unbelievably changed in the last 20 years. And what are you looking forward to when you see the next 10? I've got to tell you, I'm just looking forward to seeing how it evolves. I'm not going to say that I'm a futurist. In running my business, I like to say that I can see around corners a few months in advance, but I don't know all the things that are going to happen. I think it'd be really difficult to know. I think that there's, there are amazing things coming down the pike, right? Chat GPT is the game changer that we've seen. It's clearly showing us that the future is here. Much smarter than me said the new jobs are not are not about writing. Let's people are saying, oh, it's not that good. It's not perfect. It's been around for three months. It's been, to say it's in the infancy. It is a kernel of an idea and nothing more. Right? That's working. It's pretty unbelievable. But the jobs that are going to be out there, because we're going to see a lot of job loss to this stuff. The jobs that are going to be out there is about the management of the AI. That's truly what it's going to be about. The person who says, I don't like this, you better something because you're going to be selling hot dogs on the street corner. The person who embraces the change, and this has always been this way throughout history, who embraces the change and learns how to manage that change is the person who will succeed in a major way. You know, I heard a long time ago, years ago, somebody said the, uh, the factory of the future is one man and one dog. And the man is there to reset the power in case it goes out to get the robots to keep working. And the dog is there to make sure they don't touch anything else. I think there's a really interesting thread you're pulling at here, which is that before the rise of the passion economy, as authors, we only had publishers, really, that we yeah. could realistically make a living through. But now we can be independent. 
and we can still work with publishers and we can talk a bit about that in a later portion. But what I'm curious about talking to you now is that clearly a creative person can't do everything alone. And these sort of software and managing software can be a great thing to help us do more and help us create more awesome things. But also people are too. And both in relationships with software, but also particularly people. What is your advice, especially because I know you've worked with and hired literally dozens and dozens of people, if not hundreds of different people, what would be your advice in working with people, working with a contractor as an author? Look, it's whether it's an author or whether you're an accountant, right? Uh, you've got to first set out what are your core values and make sure that those values match. And then when I'm looking for people, when I hire people, I'm looking for a few different things. One is grit, hire for grit. There's a, there's a great book called Grit. And it really is, are people going to give up? Or are they going to keep going? Are they going to get through that project, whatever it is? The other is open-mindedness. Trying to find somebody who, who is very self-aware. I was going to put self-aware sort of third, but I'll combine it. Who's very self-aware in what they know and what they don't know. And how good are they at learning something and figuring it out and getting it done? When you're hiring contractors from a pure legal standpoint, and I think that we're really talking about just from a hiring standpoint, make sure it's somebody that you want to work with. Make sure it's somebody that, that can get the job done. But there's a big difference between when you hire for, uh, when you hire for soft skills rather than simply hard skills, you're getting somebody who can probably get the job done. Because the skills that are required to do the job are probably going to be different six months from now than they are today. So when you hire for soft skills more than you hire for hard skills, that's an important piece. I like grit and self-awareness are the most important things that I look for. And self-awareness is really hard to find, right? How do you even know if someone, how are you aware of someone's self-awareness? Especially in like Zoom world when we're interviewing someone, especially a lot of authors are like, finding contractors online and trying to sift people out through a few emails. How would you be able to detect someone's self-awareness? I think it's good. How full of themselves are they? You can usually, you can usually tell that pretty quickly. Uh, we actually have a very strict hiring method, both at Creators Legal and the law firm that, you know, that I ran for many years. And I actually used a, it's a method through a book that I've read. I've read a ton of them called The Best Team Wins. And it's a great book for hiring anybody. And whether that's executives or people, you know, I'm going to use the pizza store because he builds, he uses that as an example, right? There's, is there, is there some self, some self depreciating language, so to speak, when they talk, are they, are they overly <clears throat> full of themselves? I'm a big fan of Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink wrote the book Drive. He wrote the book, When, The Science of Timing. But my favorite book that he wrote is called To Sell as Human. And the best, everybody is a salesman these days, right? If you're an author, you better be a salesperson, especially a self-published author. Because if you think you're just going to stick your book on KDP with a nice cover and a good description and sell a bunch of them, you are sorely mistaken. That doesn't happen. There are so many, there's so much competition in this. So you got to go learn to sell. And a great salesperson is not what we think of as a salesperson 
being on the, the car lot, selling you a car and using all the fancy words, but it's somebody who gives the proper information. The world has changed and it, it really, it's about psychological movement, right? And when I'm hiring somebody, I'm not just looking for the hard skills. When people are hiring off of Fiverr, that's all they're getting. And I would hope or think that it's probably very small transactional, transactional things. Please record this voiceover for me and you're done. Please do whatever it is and you're done. It, that's not a long-term thing. It's, you've just gone in and you've chosen your double cheeseburger and your fries and you're done. Hopefully the people do a good job, but it's one simple transaction and it's over. When you're hiring somebody long-term, you've got a lot more things to think about. I think that's incredible advice and really important for people to hear, especially because I can't even tell you how many authors I know now who have PAs and their personal assistants, it hasn't gone well. It has not been a good relationship and you work with someone and pay them for months trying to make it, make it work because when you onboard someone, which is onboarding a PA in specific, takes a lot of time to integrate someone into your process. And then you realize that they're not good that's, or at least good for you, then that, oof, that's a big one. And on this same conversation, so that's trying to find the right person. But then, for lack of better words, how do you make that deal? How do you actually make that relationship work in the form of a contract, whatever that thing would be to bring someone up? Sure. That's basically, a, a, it's a hiring contract. Here's what I'm going to say about contracts, right? Most people who sign a contract with another person companies. They don't end up in court, right? They don't end up, they just, it is the, it's the rules of the game. That's what a contract is about. I come to you and I say, Hey, I'd really love it if you joined our company and did marketing. And I say nothing more other than I'll pay you a hundred dollars a week to do it. You're supposed to be there 40 hours a week. You're supposed to show up somewhere. What are you actually doing for marketing? What are your actual guideposts? The contract is really, especially in when you're coming to creative stuff and doing collaborations, is really the rules of the game. It sets out before everybody starts what is actually required. What are the expectations of the parties before it even gets started? And when you don't have that in place, stuff always goes bad. And there's two sides to that too. One is the flexibility to it. Everybody knows that sure things might change, etc. I will tell you that I hired somebody not too long ago, probably about a year ago. And we spent so much time on the details, like the intricate details of the job description of what they would be doing. About halfway through, I just thought, this isn't ever right. <laughs> this isn't going to work. And it didn't. And it didn't last long. I let it go on for longer than it should have. I should have stopped it right during the contract part because when it when you get down to that level of detail, it generally doesn't work. But you got to have the basics and you better have real expectations. One party, it's basically, what are you going to do? I'm going to sell you my car for $1,000. And the other person comes and says, great, I'm going to buy your car for a thousand dollars and they think they're getting the late model Mercedes and you really had 
an old broken down 1972 Toyota in the backyard. And when they show up to pick up the car, they say, I hope you brought your tow truck. Have that detail in there. No, that's, and that's a good one. That analogy, I think, really fits because so often those expectations aren't clear. And that makes it hard to actually end a relationship when it's going poorly because you don't actually have the metrics to find when it's going poorly. And on this, what I'm curious about is an author's first instinct when they want to make a contract. In fact, even my first instinct is, first of all, that's way too much work. So maybe I'm just not going to do it. And second of all, okay, maybe I have to do this. But that sounds really expensive. So talk to me about this. How can you have a contract that isn't going to break the bank? Basic contract stuff. Obviously, I started Creators Legal because I saw the need. Most people aren't going to pick up the phone and call a lawyer because they're so expensive. And most of those contracts, they're just not necessary, right, to have some really expensive contract. We started creators because we wanted artists and creatives and filmmakers and musicians to be able to have a place that they could go and not just get contracts really inexpensively, but be walked through really quickly and have a place to store them and have a place to manage them. And to be able to have that chain of title right there when you've got it, right? Doing a children's book, using an animator else to write, help me edit somebody else to design the cover, et cetera. It's actually interesting. Probably of all our contracts, the book illustrator agreement is in, definitely in our top five. We probably sell in the top five of book of contracts that we sell across the board of our 200 and something contracts. Book illustrator agreements are way up there. Yeah, it's interesting. And so it's very inexpensive. Right now we're at $20 a contractor. If you're prolific, grab a hundred bucks for an entire year for everything. We'll change that stuff at some point. Really being in this beta version of Creators Legal has taught us a lot of what's going on. We really, it's very interesting. In fact, we just started because we have thousands of people in our system now. And so we, we just put out a creator economy survey. So it's starting to get, we're just starting to get the results back. We're just starting. It just came out the other day. Very interesting. Yeah, I've not personally used Creators Legal and really enjoyed the process in terms of seamless. It took a lot of the stress out because you know that it's important to do this thing. But especially for most authors, like me and me that included, we're not hiring someone full-time for a full-time salary for the next year where it's okay, like maybe you do get a lawyer and it's fine to have this huge expense for the contract because you really want to, whatever that situation is. But in this case, it's no, I'm only, this is a one-time job or maybe it's recurring, but it's really only like a hundred bucks a month. So spending like hundreds of dollars up front on a contract doesn't economically make sense. And the time too, because the stress of being like, okay, I already barely have time. Why am I going to spend five hours trying to get the contract right? Like that sounds bad. So I really appreciated your service. That's why I appreciate you having your friendship and knowing about it now for over a year, which is really cool to see it grow and evolve. And I'm curious for you, what you see with Creators Legal, having that kind of maybe broader view of additional legal and or problems that you might think you'd be interested in solving for creators or that authors and creative people specifically have. I don't know if there's something else that you're like thinking about with Creators Legal. I think about this stuff all day long. What do creators need? What I look at it from is trying to anticipate some of the stuff that's coming out. 
And we designed ourselves for speed because this is a huge pain point with creators. One, they don't know what they're looking for. And so they're heading to Google, trying to find whatever. They're not going to pick up a phone for a lawyer. You said you're going to pay $1,200 for somebody for an entire year of work, a hundred bucks a month to do very specific things. Nobody's looking to spend $1,500 with a lawyer. The average contract in America is $6,900 with a lawyer, 6,900 from start to finish. The average is the, the dog center. That's right. I know the average, the average lawyer in America is charging like three, $375 an hour. That's not somebody who specializes in any kind of creative work. You start getting into that stuff. You're getting into the 500, 750s. I was $700 an hour. And that was the last time I did that stuff was like 10 years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, 10 years ago. A really good entertainment lawyer is going to be 1500 bucks an hour. So 1200, let's, let's be around there. That's why for us, what am I seeing? I'm seeing this need that people need this stuff and they skip it because one, they don't trust what they're finding on the internet and they don't want to pick up the phone and spend that kind of money to, to go to a lawyer. I see the need for this stuff growing more and more because the passion economy is about these general collaborations. And I think one of the things that we've seen over the last 20 years in the advent, we were talking even before, and you, Michael, you and I talk all the time, right? About various, this various stuff. We've seen the evolution of technology to be able to create, have, be able to Author a book from home easily. You're no longer on your selectric typewriter, right? Your IBM. You're you can create music straight from your from your computer. You can do so many things and don't need to be in a big studio. And the quality of this stuff. <clears throat> what kind of microphone are you using? It's the one of the blues, right? Yeah. I have a professional grade Yeti sitting over on my shelf right there. This I paid $14 for in Colombia. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. And my, my podcast editor said much better than the Yeti. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't even have a name on it. Like off the shelf at the electronic store by my gym down in Medellin. And so it's really funny, right? But the tools have come down in price so much that it allows us to be creative. You're using Riverside. Right? We're going to plug all these different things, right? You're using Riverside. You're on the free or paid version. We're on the paid version, I believe. It's 20 bucks a month. I'm actually sharing it with someone where I'm, we're paying like $70 for the year to access it. Because we got an education plan and then we shared it with someone. Yeah. I'm like, sorry, Riverside. Sorry. I'm like 20 or 40 bucks a month for the car stuff. Okay. Use Descript. Yeah. I pay $5 a month. $5 a month. You bought, let's say you didn't go out and buy the, the blue ice ball. You, you bought the $14 microphone from Columbia that works better than the blue ice ball. This was like 45 and I bought it five years ago. All right. Well, 45 bucks. But that's still, you bought it five years ago. You, I know you, you work in fast food, weren't you? I was, for a bit, I was working at like 
same pay rate. It was right. full towel boy. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So that cost you a couple of days of work. Cost me about six hours of work after taxes. Okay. Okay. All right. Got it. Okay. The blue, this thing was still only 14 bucks. I've got the ring light, which I've got so many different versions of lights. I bought so many different things. And at the end of the day, I always end up with a basic ring light, but that was $15 on Amazon. That's crazy. That's crazy. And with editing software, this is happening too. Like for authors who are not using software like Grammarly or pro writing aid, like this is just editing software. Grammarly is free. And then for writing aid, if you use it, the paid version that you can get like lifetime access to is $400 and like years, $100 or $100. Grammarly's free. Yes, you can get it, right? You can get that stuff, right? But the point of this is cameras are available cheap. Microphones, software, all this stuff is so affordable where when I was in high school, when I was in college, this wasn't cheap. Right. This was still, if you were going to make an independent movie, you can make an independent movie on your iPhone. You And people have done it. Lots of people have done this stuff. Right. It's about the creative, the reason that this, that the passion economy, that the creator economy exists is because of two things. One is the cost of the equipment to create has dropped drastically. The other is that we have plenty of places to go distribute it without the need for somebody in the middle to say, okay, you get to distribute. Traditional Hollywood, traditional publishing, it's all still there. Penguin Publishing didn't go out of business as far as I, Simon & Schuster is still on Fifth Avenue, right? Madison Avenue still exists. Hollywood, Beverly Hills still exists with all the agencies. Oh, they definitely. Here's the differences. You don't necessarily need them. Dave Goggins, one of the highest selling authors out there right now, self-published, right? Colleen Hoover, who is the best-selling fiction author, pretty much I think the best-selling author in the world by a wide margin, the last calendar year, started off in self-publishing and then signed a deal with a traditional publisher but that was after years of self-publishing success. Probably the only reason was to take some of the pressure off herself or to say, oh, I just don't want to deal with this, with all these various things. I don't think Dave Goggins, I think he published with Scribe the second his second book. He just had another book come out. And I haven't read the book yet, but can't I met him just before I met him just before Can't Hurt Me came out. And yeah, and he was at, he was speaking at the same conference I was speaking at and he was really great, but nobody really knew him that well. I think he had been on Joe Rogan at that point. He has a great personality and he's a tough guy and he's really interesting. So Can't Hurt Me did extraordinarily well. And, and he had plenty of, he had lots of action for publishers and he just said, no, why am I going to do this? This brings me to maybe a great way to wrap things up, which is utilizing these creative tools and these new platforms and what would be your advice specifically to someone who's getting started in fiction and a lot of times in our podcast it's very common in this community to spend money on paid advertising to drive discovery but a lot of times we try and figure out ways you can create things to drive discovery of your content and i'm curious what your insight would be there to someone 
okay, it needs to create, you do whatever you can do. If you're, as I like to say, I've got a face made for radio. So a podcast is perfect for me. If you can drive, if you can drive engagement, I don't care where you're driving engagement, drive the engagement. And if you have something good to say, if you have something interesting to say, if you have new take on something, it's going to, it's going to take a foothold. It's, it'll be okay. Forget it. I really like that mindset because oftentimes we're always looking at the perfect platform, the killer strategy, and you're just saying, do something that you like, that you're good at, the passion economy. And as long as you can engage people, that's, there's no magical, obviously there's no magical. Yeah. I don't care where you are in your career. Everybody can benefit from reading Ryan Holiday's book, The Perennial Seller. Everybody. I don't care whether you're a business owner, a filmmaker, a musician, an author. He really breaks it down really well on not creating art that might sell for a week, but creating a following and a fan base and creating art that lasts for, for hundreds of years. And he breaks down the difference of what that's about. He talks about Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart, one of the biggest stars we've got, right? Was a comedian for a long time. And he would play anywhere. He would play any room, any size, and he did it 365 days a year for years before he broke through. And here's what he did was he put a pen and paper on every single person's chair and said, give me your email address. And by the time he got famous, he had some email list that was an insane number of people. And when he started getting the gigs, the film gigs, they said, you're going to promote this right to your email list. He said, nope, that's extra, right? At the end, yeah, of course, because at the end of the day, the most valuable thing any business owner, any author, any person owns is still the email list. Don't forget about the sort of traditional me measures, right? It's still the email list. I, I only subscribed to one person's content, pay, extra paid content. His name is Peter Atia. He's a longevity doctor and out of Texas. It's very interesting stuff. And uh, I subscribe, he has a podcast called The Drive, but he does quite a bit of writing as well. In fact, he's got a longevity book that's coming out soon. But when you look at this stuff from the standpoint of what sells, what is a perennial seller? I love this book, the, uh, the Ryan Holiday's book, and I've read all of his books. He's one of my absolute favorite authors. But perennial sellers stuck with me in a way that no other book did that he wrote because it reminded us of things like the Zildjian symbols, right? The, that most bands, almost every band uses, any professional drummer uses Zildjian symbols. That company started during the Ottoman Empire. They made gongs, okay? Oh my gosh. Okay. And all around. Like, this isn't, they've been around a hundred years. They've been around since the Ottoman Empire. Right? Like he, he talks about Iron Maiden, which is his favorite band. Iron Maiden has been selling albums forever and for decades. And it's something like maybe one of their songs has gotten any airplay on a radio. I learned about the Kevin Hart thing through, through 
that book. But the other thing is I know so many authors that just kick, they kick the shit out and without the struggle there, it's quantity over quality. Most people aren't good enough to do that. I toiled on my book for two years, rewriting every word, like thinking about it in ways that, is this the right word? And maybe I tried too hard, but you can't. I think about something like, and he talks about this, Jerry Seinfeld worked on one joke for seven years. It was two sentences, but he worked on it for seven years. What makes the difference between the people who are hacks, the people who simply are putting the stuff out and the people who are artists? If you're going to put it out, you better put out the best you can put out. And then you can talk about marketing and how to get people to go buy it. Yeah. No, I think that is tremendous advice. And it makes me want to, first of all, I'm very happy you plugged a book because plugging books in this podcast is always welcome. It makes me want to share a book about storytelling, which is called Wired for Story by Lisa Crom. And it's all about basically how stories work in our brain and why there's some key things that we can do with writers. It has nothing to do with being literary. It has to do with the core fundamentals of why we like to read, why we like to experience stories. And if you can understand that, you can create a much, much better story, but it's not easy. And a lot of times she cited a writer in there who rewrote something 17 times. There's certainly limits where you hit your limit. But it's good insight that you should be really creating something that ultimately turns someone into a fan rather than just flipping the pages. There's no question. But I'm going to say 17 times. I don't know if that's... I worked... When I worked in Hollywood, um, I worked both at an agency and I worked at, at a production company. I worked at one of the big agencies and I worked with some really amazing people. I'm going to tell you, I don't know that 17 times is a lot. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I can tell you like some of the greats who also write novels, who also write plays, who also write or writing screenplays. <clears throat> Maybe if they're writing in television, one of the things is about television is you got to kick that stuff out fast, right? Television's about fast. And, and a lot of them really like that. Writers really like that because there's a big, big difference between writing television and writing for film. And in these days, you can go onto YouTube this afternoon. You can, you're right there right? You can tell a story. But at the end of the day, this is about getting the best work that you can do out to the public. Anything less than the public is just going to ignore it. And let's face it, most work isn't that great anyway, even at their very best. Yeah, my, my uncle, who was a very smart guy, very thoughtful. He was a doctor for many years, but very, very trained in the classics of just about everything. A guy who had a 10,000 record jazz collection that was, that was very sought after he passed away. Like everybody, every jazz collector wanted a piece of that, right? In the Bay Area when he passed away. But he would say to me, look, five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you probably won't even remember the movie that won the best picture because there's really only about two or three movies that came out over a five-year period that were memorable. Yeah. So it takes a lot of work. You want to be one of those memorable authors. That's without a doubt. And that's not, not always a thing that comes easy at all, but that's what makes, makes us cool. I love it, Eric. Thank you so much for being here. In the link description, you can find 
Creators Legal. If you're interested in using it, I'm very grateful that you came out today. Thank you very much for having me. And that was the episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. It was not only what authors need to know about copyright, but a lot of the key things that we need to know as authors about the legal side of things. Eric was a wonderful guest, very grateful that he came on, and we're very grateful for y'all to listening. We have some awesome episodes coming up with some really great guests. We're getting into like spring now, which is weird, but we're getting close. At least when this is released, it'll basically be really getting close to springtime. So we're really excited to hit the ground running with not like the next season, but I feel like the next phase of descriptions for authors. We have some great guests coming up, and we'd love to hear from you what episodes you'd like to hear us talk about. So feel free to reach out to us in email at contact at ream.inc. It's in the description. And also, if you aren't yet a part of the Ream waitlist, you should join it because we're launching to the public in May 7th. I think this is the first time I've ever mentioned it in the podcast. This isn't like the official public announcement of that, but since y'all listen to the end, that's your reward. We're launching to the public on May 7th. We have two really big events that month. One of them... I can't really talk about yet. The other one, I guess I can talk about, but I'll leave y'all in suspense. I'll share that in one of the next few podcast episodes. It'll be really, really fun. So May is a big month for us in subscriptions for authors. If you're not familiar with Ream, it's a subscription platform by fiction authors for fiction authors. We already have hundreds of authors on the platform, and we're really excited to hopefully have you on one day soon. So you can check out more about Ream in the link in the description. Otherwise... I hope y'all have an amazing rest of your day. I'm super thankful for you listening. Super grateful for all the support the podcast has had recently. The best way you can support this podcast is share this message with a friend. Share the link to the podcast that you enjoyed with your friends. Because we're trying to create a movement in the publishing industry here. Publishing is changing. We all know that. But we have an opportunity as authors to create a future where we have more power, where we have more control over our businesses, and a greater ability to do more awesome things for our readers, and prioritize our own wellness. If that doesn't sound awesome, then, well, it sounds awesome to me, which is why I'm sharing it. So I hope if y'all think it's awesome that you want to share and spread the word too, because that's what we're all about here at Subscriptions for Authors. Anyways, enough from me, enough from me. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll be back soon, but in the meantime, don't forget Storytellers for the World. Oh, my God.